on that day, the world was changed forever. Welcome to the world of ruin. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I am Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, characters, and dare I say tragedies of Final Fantasy VI. This may be a little bit of an emotional episode. Uh, when last we left our heroes, the world was destroyed by a mad clown with godlike powers. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what happened. Yep. They were, most of them, uh, other than Shadow, who was still trying to prevent the inevitable here, on the airship known as the Blackjack that was split right down the middle, scattering the party who knows where, with Celeste falling right through the middle. And the last we saw, the oceans were turning reddish-purple, the continents were splitting apart, and uh, we get a fade to black, we get the sentence that I read up top, and then we open with this sort of hovering camera just showing all of the destruction before it settles over an island, the little beach. We see a, a bird, presumably a pigeon or a pigeon-like bird on the beach, which is actually an interesting bit of symbolism that will play a role. And it's a good bit of foreshadowing here for everything mm -hmm. that's about to come as well. Mm -hmm. That the first thing we see once we get off of the kind of overworld over-the-shoulder camera and back onto our straight-down view that we have for most of the game. See the bird. Then we pan up. There's a very small cabin. And inside of that cabin, we see Celeste lying in bed, being tended to by Dr. Sid. Yeah. I assume he's a doctor. I, I've, I mean, presumably he had to study medicine uh, in school in right. order to be able to you know, experiment on magical creatures. I think that's probably a prerequisite. I, I assume. Yeah, yeah. This this broken down house on this little island. There's no music. It's just the sound of the sea and the wind, I'm pretty sure. It's very desolate. Like you said, uh, we, we get that sort of panning over the world, the miscolored sky, the miscolored sea. And Sid comes in and he's checking on her and then he goes to work at this desk, presumably writing some kind of a note or taking notes or drawing up plans he is after all a Sid and Celeste begins to stir and she finally wakes up and Sid tells her that she's been sleeping for a year a year yeah this this might be our first real big jump forward in time in a Final Fantasy uh, at least a non-magical one you know if we've done <laughs> uh, time travel right. type things or going into Corner vortexes trigger. to fight gods and stuff yeah, yeah. Chrono Trigger is all about traveling through time. But yeah, this is just our story picking up a year later from where we left off. And I don't think uh, a Final Fantasy game has used that particular rhetorical device before. No. It, it yeah. would be used again. Right, right. But. Not Certainly not one that I remember. It's not like we've talked about all the other Final Fantasies before this one. <laughs> right. I think we'd Surely remember. we'd remember something. Uh, yeah. In any case, he explains that she's been asleep for a year I would think that would suggest that she's been in some kind of a coma. And Sid has been watching over her this whole time. And, and Celeste is obviously grateful. And he says, I am about out of energy. He explains that there were others, but we're the only two left. 
Celeste remembers her friends and asks, you know, if they're here. Uh, do you know where Locke is? She calls out Locke by name specifically. Sid, the, this is so exhausting, I guess, in a way. He, he says he doesn't know. He says maybe we're the only ones left. He says the world is dying, and the few others who were here passed away of boredom and despair. And oppressive, maybe? Yeah, I don't think you can pass away from boredom, first of all. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair enough. There, there are a few bits of clunky writing in here, or clunky translating, maybe. We've given Ted Woolsey props uh, as he deserves them, and will again in this episode, actually, because there's some great writing. But when he says he's out of energy, that I, I think could have very easily should have been, I'm just exhausted from sure. the year of being alone and just taking care of you, and I haven't really had much time to take care of myself. I, I, this could have been better written. The, the point still comes across. It feels a but, little game mechanic-y. I'm out of energy. Yeah, right, right. I'm low on hit Something points Something Mega now. Man might say. Right. Um, as well as, yeah, that, that people died of boredom and, and despair. But this is also a Super Nintendo game where you have to be careful about how dramatic some of these things can be we, we've talked about i think in the past the difference between words like destroy and kill that's sure. like a whole thing in star wars nobody ever kills they destroy power rangers and, too. when i was a kid i, I right. noticed that and so here i think in a modern translation you would have to rightfully say that whoever was left died of starvation mm -hmm. and illness and well, you know, things that actually kill people when they're stranded on a desert island I think, or wounds from the destruction of the planet. Right. Absolutely. But I think people absolutely do die of despair. True. And maybe that's a, a word that captures all of what I'm saying there in one. Maybe that's kind of what they're getting at. Mm -hmm. So so fair enough. I mean, n not of I guess maybe of the things that also cause despair. Maybe I'm being a little bit pedantic here. Um wouldn't be the first time <laughs> but yeah i i think it could be cleaned up or at the very least i think the writing could be made better sure and there are even some weird plot contrivances for what's about to come next that like i can get past because as i've talked about i don't care about those things as much and w the emotion of everything that happens here on the island is so powerful that how exactly it's explained is so much less important. Right, right, right. Because Sid has been taking care of Celeste, among other things, for the past year, Celeste decides that she can take care of him now. Sid says to Celeste that you're the closest thing I have to family. We could live out our lives here, and Celeste is kind of okay with that. She, you know, she says, maybe I could even call you granddad, which is cute. Yeah, they they very quickly develop. And again, I think you could drag this out on our HBO right. special when this is one episode probably just of them on the island. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think you could honestly do that and drag out the emotion, have her dealing with some of the consequences of her role in it. Because while I think it's implied, she never says out loud as she's dealing with her grief, you know, I wish I had never done some of the things that I did. I think you could get a lot of that in here mm -hmm. and and then drive home this relationship of them becoming very, very close and being a grandpa, granddaughter-like relationship. And it, and it has that switch where one takes care of the other and then there comes a time when the younger needs to take care of the older. Right. And, yeah, it's, it's 
really powerful stuff, and it's probably a part of the reason why, despite every horrible thing he's done, you and I still feel this emotional connection to Sid. Right. I was re-listening to our episode about the top ten Sids, and because I, I was curious, you know, what did I say? I can't remember quite what I said about why I like this Sid so much because I ranked him fairly highly, uh, and it's as much because of him being in Final Fantasy VI and him trying to come to terms with what he's done. I, I wonder though if I ranked him too highly because of my nostalgia for this game, and we talked about that during that episode. But but I wonder like he did horrible things. And are we, we, we talked about, are we going to forgive him? Is he going to forgive himself? Do I really want to rank him that highly on my list? I feel much more conflicted about all that now. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. But I also think, you know, I ranked one of the SIDs who's an out-and-out villain very high on my list. So if it's about whether or not the guy is an interesting character and not just somebody who you think is a, a great hero, I think... This Sid is an extremely interesting character because of all of the things that you mentioned. And I think that it's actually perfectly reasonable to accept this one sort of big redemption scene here that he gives all of the last of himself to save Celeste, which is really step one of restoring balance to the world and to the warriors of light and that they develop this relationship, that it has this impact on her, and that they're two people who are grasping for something in a world that feels completely lost is, I think, really powerful stuff. And while when I was a kid, I think I was a bit too young to fully experience the emotion of all of this, uh, just watching this recently... Uh, really choked me up quite a bit because it's it, you you do get a sense of two people who are extremely flawed, both of whom are to some degree, even to a large degree, responsible for the state that the world is in, and they can choose to do one of two things: give up and die, or try to do something in the face of enormous odds to try to make it right. And both of them, in whatever way they can, choose to try to make it right. And isn't that the heart of what Final Fantasy is about? Yeah, I mean, fair enough. That and uh, fishing minigames. <laughs> the first one! <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Though I have to say, my first fishing minigame was Breath of Fire. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. Uh, what, what else? Um, I mean, Final Fantasy XV has a fishing minigame. Sure. 14, Pokemon. Almost everything now has a fishing game. Yeah, it's become a thing. Is that that because Japanese role-playing games are made in Japan and Japan's an island or a set of islands? I I have, yeah, I don't know. I don't don't know know either. I I have wondered that also about trains. It seems like in a lot of Japanese pop culture, not that I have my thumb on the pulse of Japanese pop culture, but it seems like there are a lot of trains and there's a lot of fishing and like a lot of beach parties. Anyway... The, the point here is that Sid is ill and Celeste is catching him with fish and presumably cooking them also, but there's no cooking minigame here. And, and the goal is to catch the fast-moving fish because they're the yummy fish and like there's a whole point system that you don't, that's behind the scenes that you don't see. And if you catch enough and feed him enough, he will eventually say, I feel much better and you can save him. And he explains that there's a project 
that kept him going, and it's down below, and go have a look. That said... Yeah, that's that's one way the, the story can go, but um, in in a world where we don't have a multiple choice again in our HBO retelling, right. our right. Netflix special, uh, that's not how the story goes. Well, I was going to ask you, in our hypothetical remake, would you choose, like, like, presumably we would have this whole thing where Celeste is trying to save him and, like, Maybe things are feeling a little bit better, and, and maybe we can make this work on this island. I'll just live out a simple, peaceful life here. Do we have her save Sid or not? In no way. <laughs> because yeah. the scene that follows, and again, this is back to your, you know, the difference between appreciating something as a uh, well-written piece of literature and, like, rooting for something to happen in a fictitious story. I don't like that if you okay well I'm just I guess we'll describe it now um, that if you fail to save Sid and he dies in bed Celeste in a fit of emotion sprints uh, to the top of a mountain sees a, a dead bird there a dead, the, yeah. an, More bird an original symbol of, uh, of hope and, it, and it's dead there and Sid is gone, and, and she kind of does the everyone's gone, Locke is gone, the world, and, and now I'm on this island alone. Right. And she throws herself off the top of the cliff. Yeah. It's kind of... And the yeah. sky goes black. It's very surreal. It, it feels to me like it parallels the opera scene when she, as Maria, tosses the, the flowers off the balcony... Not really right. giving up hope, but like, you know, I've lost this battle. And, and this feels like a strong parallel to that scene. Yeah, except instead of throwing the roses, she throws herself. Right. If Maria was metaphorically giving up herself, here Celeste is literally doing so. And I agree, it's a much more powerful scene than Sid saying, Hey, go down, there, go down those stairs and find that raft I built for you. <laughs> right. Um, and also because I... And again, we'd have to go through every detail, and that's kind of the point of what we're trying to do here, but in order, I think this is the only suicide attempt of any major character in a Final Fantasy game. Hmm. And there, there might be others, especially in some of the ones we haven't played as much, but it, it certainly... Shocking, and you could actually argue that it's done ambiguously enough that maybe it isn't even a suicide attempt. That like she throws herself into the water, and there's even a line about like taking a leap of faith that I think they put in there specifically. Like, so if you're playing it with your kids, you could try to say, "Oh no, 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 she's just really upset, and so she jumped into the water." And but you know, I thought that was meant to be a metaphor, like like a oh, it is a euphemism. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah. But I think that's really smart and clever writing. So I was just giving him a hard time a minute ago. I, 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 do, I do think that that gives you a little bit of wiggle room, the way I it's see. presented. Yeah. Certainly she doesn't give any sort of goodbye cruel world or write a note or, or do no. anything. She's just in an absolute fit of emotion. And um, Despair. even the way like we have seen the, the sparkling light, Terra turns into one when she mm-hmm. flies off into the distance. Uh, it's kind of the same sparkles we talked about in Chrono Trigger when 
Marl disappears sure. uh, when she's erased from existence. Those sort of points of light. Right. Uh, and they're used as tears for Celeste as she throws herself off the cliff. And it's just breathtaking. But our hero survives this leap of faith and washes up on the beach uh, where she's been living for, I don't know, weeks, months since she woke up. And she's woken by a bird. Again, with the birds. I wonder if, we've talked before about the hope baby uh, as a trope. I, I think birds, especially in the world of ruin, feel like a, a symbol of hope. Like you were saying, that, that this is a, a trope. The bird of hope, perhaps. In Chrono Trigger, there was that plant of hope uh, of sorts in the, in right. the uh, Ice Age. And in Wall-E, for that matter. But here, it sort of feels like there's right. that, yeah, that bird of hope. And actually... Uh, as I was redoing this scene recently for the podcast, I was reminded of another bird of hope in Final Fantasy. Is it the one I'm thinking of? Well, I don't know what you're thinking of. <laughs> what are you thinking of? The one from the end of The Spirits Within. Yes. Oh, God, I'm yes. I'm glad we both had one. that same thought. For a movie that doesn't get enough credit for being Final Fantasy enough, the, the couple of bird shots as I was going through this, too, reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah, that and because the whole world is dead, except you know, life finds a way, right. as Jeff Goldblum tells us. Right. And and so yeah, seeing that bird after everything that's happened, after finally uh, perhaps winning the day, yeah, the the bird of hope is really cool. Another thing that really got to me that I didn't remember as much about this as a kid being emotionally impacted by, but she starts to yell at the bird she scolds the bird for waking her up for nursing her back to health which i'm not quite sure how that happened or maybe it didn't maybe she's yelling at sid when she says that she's angry to have been woken up uh and is almost defiant like how dare you (laughs) and it, it parallels to me tom hanks and castaway when he gets mad at wilson Right. Of, yeah. You know, and it's just heartbreaking. Like you're stranded on this island and this bird could be the only friend you've got and you're just, you, you've lost it, Celeste. You've lost it. But then she gets a glimpse of a piece of hope, finally. Yeah, the bird is wearing a bandana or is, is clutching a bandana. It has a bandana with it. and And she... Wants to know where the bird got the bandana, as though there aren't just scraps of cloth lying all over the world. And probably this bandana isn't Locke's bandana, but it certainly puts her in mind of Locke's bandana. Probably it found a scrap of cloth somewhere just making a nest, right? Right. Yeah, but she demands Celeste, answers from the bird at first. But when, right. Once she. Where did you get this? <laughs> Is he alive? Like, again, shouting at the beach ball right. or the, the volleyball. Right. And then it just flies off, but. And she finally says, and, and probably because she has to, he's alive. Right. Yeah. Like you said, she made all that up. That wasn't his bandana. Um, right. I, I, I've Almost heard people not. criticize this scene before saying, how convenient that the bird just happened to fly by with Locke's bandana. That ain't Locke's bandana. No. Almost certainly not. But she, you know, it, it gives her that that spurring on, that that spark of whatever it is she needs to 
to continue. And so she goes back inside and she finds a note left by Grandpa Sid. Presumably this is part of what he was working on. When you're trying to feed him, we forgot to mention he'll be, he'll like run to the bed real quick. Yeah, he keeps being out of bed. And you're like, hey, old man, get back in bed. I'm trying to save your life. Right. Uh, but there's a, there's a note uh, and he says in the note, you need to leave. The others are waiting for you. Find the stairs. Down them lies your road to freedom. Love, Granddad. Which is a really super nice and sweet note. But again, I've, I've got some pragmatic uh, plot <laughs> sure. issues with this. The, it, it is a little tough. You're like, why didn't you guys just take that raft on out of here and, and not get dead? Uh, presumably, it's right. only just recently been finished. Why didn't he tell uh-huh. her he was building a raft? There, you could make an issue of this. I choose mm-hmm. not to. I assume there's sort of that you don't want to get your hopes up. What if I don't finish? Right. right. What if it's not seaworthy? I'm not going to try to make her carry this sick old man with her across the sea. Right. And, and that's, uh, I think, in a retelling, it would be very easy to justify. And that's why I don't make an issue of it. Again, it's the difference between a plot hole and a loose end. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have to assume this is one of the best-built, most over-engineered rafts <laughs> to ever have existed uh, in the multiverse. Yeah, oh, top engineer of the Empire, you know. Right. He never he never uh, builds an airship. I mean, presumably he built some of those airships, the Air Force that the Empire uses. No. But he built he did build us a raft, which is I don't know that there's a fun dichotomy there. This engineer never builds us an airship. Yeah. But he does build us a raft. Yeah. So Celeste, with nothing else to do, gets on the raft and, you know, wherever the, the tides will take her. We do get a new overworld theme, which is uh, at least as oppressive as, as the purple oceans and the orange sky and the, like, all the plant life is dying on this world. Like, everything's sort of brownish. There's no green. Uh, even some of the monsters, like, if you go out and try to fight the monsters on that on the, the island with Sid, they slowly die whether or not you do anything to them. Yeah. Yeah, everything is pretty messed up. But eventually, Celeste washes up on shore. We end up on the Imperial Continent in the town of Albrook. Albrook is still around. There are some things you hear about here. We hear about on that day. Debris from all over the world was pulled to the center of the Imperial continent to create Kefka's tower right on top of the Imperial capital of Vector. We hear about these eight dragons that have been released since the breaking of the world uh, and that they seal away some powerful entity known as the Crusader. Uh, We hear about uh, Pumbaba and Doomgaze. Uh, And we hear about the Light of Judgment. That is, from atop his Tower of Madness, the god of nihilism, will strike down anybody who even vaguely offends him. He's destroyed the town of Mobles with it. Uh, we learn that certain, you know, the world's been remade, so like the Serpent Trench is now above ground. Uh, certain things that have been sunken for years are, are above water, and uh, certain things that have been above water are now under. Yeah, and most of the towns, like you see when you go into Albrook, about half of the buildings have been completely destroyed. They've fallen apart. There's been no real attempt to 
repair them. Presumably that would incite right. Kefka's wrath to try to Possibly. rebuild anything. And so, yeah, every city that you can, really towns, uh, that you can visit in the world of ruin is full of broken and empty buildings. So now that you've got Celeste on the world map, there are only a few things that you absolutely have to do in order to proceed to the end of the game. For example, the next thing we're going to describe, you can skip entirely. The, the point at this point is to recollect our allies and, and take the fight to Kefka, but you don't have to collect them all. That said, I think we're going to go through and describe all the events of collecting all our characters before we move on to the end game here. Don't have to collect them all. <laughs> Yes, well done. So in the town of Tsen, as soon as you enter, the light of judgment strikes it, uh, suggesting that somebody here has irritated Kefka, and there's a, a house collapsing. Celeste, being a hero, goes to try to help, and hey, we know this guy, this bear of a man who is holding this house up all by himself. Yeah, that'd be uh, a fun scene to do in a in a retelling in some sort of modern. How is Saban realistically <laughs> holding up this building? We know he's super right. strong, but you know, it could be done. I'm I'm for it. Sure, we could come up with something. Yeah, you got to take Celeste inside. You had it's one of those timed missions. You got to run around this uh, house and and collect treasure and find the kid and get out in time. And then Saban will move and the whole house collapses. Celeste and Saban, of course, are thrilled to see each other. Saban says a thing. He says, you think a minor thing like the end of the world would do me in? Yes. I like this tonally because we've just been through an ordeal. Sid died. Celeste tried to kill herself. This is all coming after all of the other wrath and destruction that we've seen. And Saban brings a much-needed moment of levity and hope and positive attitude uh, that, that you would hope to get from him. And it's different. You can, I mean, the end of the world affected everybody. He's not the same guy he was. But yeah, I love that line. So I was giving the writers and or translators a hard time a minute ago. This, I think, is done perfectly. The, a, a minor thing like the end of the world. You think that'd do me in? Oh, it's so good. Right. Yeah, I, I think it speaks to his character as a guy who's going to keep pushing no matter what. Uh, I do have to wonder what he's been doing for the last year. I kind of assume he's been wandering around the Imperial continent helping whomever he can. Right. Because that's the kind of guy he is, you know, trying to bring some hope. And that's what we find him doing is holding up this building, you know, and presumably right. he's doing the little things. I, I assume he's been a very Batman-like-esque figure uh, <laughs> sure. in these times. Uh, in fact, I forgot to mention back in Albrook, there's a man who says, the spark in your eye, it matches that of a man who went north to Tsen. And, and I assume that's uh, Sabin. Uh, Sabin's still got that spark. Right. And that also lends credence to the Warriors of Light motif. Nice. Yeah. That, that yeah. they're somehow recognizable, these people. There is another thing we can learn here, that there are some people who have devoted themselves to Kefka. They've created a cult of Kefka, and they have built themselves a tower in this valley that you can only get access to if you can fly. Or presumably there are some mountain passes. It's just not available to us as a game mechanic. So now with Sabin and Celeste, 
we can make our way to the town of Mobles. You go, you walk along the Serpent Trench, that again is now above water. Again, this is something you don't have to do, but I think it's good to mention it now because I think it makes sense with the story. Right. You get to town. There's no town music. This is this is the town everyone has said has been totally destroyed uh, by the by the light of judgment. And specifically, you can hear about it before. They'll, they'll tell you here, but you, you can hear rumors before you even arrive that the adults in town are all dead. Right. From right. The, from the light of judgment from Kafka having protected their children. Right. So there's like a house that's underwater. Uh, everything's broken down. Once you enter town, immediately a couple of watchdogs bark at you, but they don't like prevent you from going in. So I kind of got to wonder. Yeah. <laughs> They're very good boys. Maybe they very know. Very good doggos. They know. Again, warriors of light. So, <laughs> right, the right. sparkle. <laughs> a, a kid will, will come outside and shout and then run back inside. And of course you follow the kid and you go downstairs into a house, into a basement. And there's this sort of hidden room and you go into these cave rooms and here we see a whole bunch of kids. And one of them, in fact, comes up to you and says, you're going to have to fight your way in here, mister. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> but Tara's here. So, you know, third party member, right on. Tara's here. She she calls off the kids so you don't have to fight them, which is probably for the best. <laughs> that's probably good. That's probably good. And Celeste goes right into it. Hey, great to yeah. see you. Let's go. It's time to get Kafka. We, we, we got to fight him back. Let's go. And Tara just walks away. Talking to the kids here, they refer to Tara as Mama. They explain that you know they are who is left. There are a couple of older kids here, Dwayne and Katerin. Like all the kids have the kid sprites and they have the adult size sprites, but I have to assume mid to late teens. Yeah. And that one of the kids says, "You're not going to take Tara away, are you?" Yeah. Oh man. And another yes, I one am, but... says, <laughs> "My mommy and daddy died." Like there's like real like yeah yeah. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. So you get to Tara, and she explains that she can't fight any longer. That you know, we've already talked about the story. Everybody here died when Kefka turned his light on the town. There's only the kids left, and the moment she arrived, she felt needed, which is not really a thing I think she's felt. Like Bannon wanted her to fight for the Returners, right? Like yeah. everybody was asking, asking her to to be a warrior. Nobody needed her like this, and this is new for her. And I remember, I distinctly remember in high school, a buddy of mine being really down on Tara for this scene. Like, you know, her not wanting to fight that she's, I'm not going to repeat any of the things that teenage boys say when they think somebody's not strong enough. But, you know, they were saying mean things. And I was like, I I, I don't think I, I said the things at the time that I would say now that this is, in fact, is very strong of her to... To not get back into the fight, but rather to to take on the responsibility of protecting, caring for, teaching children. Yeah, and children who are not biologically her own, but she has never been able to have a relationship with her biological parents. And right. She has this line, too, about how in being here, she's feeling things she's never felt before. We talked a lot in the world of balance about her trying to find out what love is. And a lot of times I think that can be framed as romantic love. And especially when she's talking about it with General Leo, I think we all kind of lean in and go, oh, oh, and and that's good, too. But to have 
this sort of unconditional love of a child. And remember, she's been taking care of these kids for a year now. And to form that kind of found family, we talked about that as one of our major themes for this game. This is this is it. She's never had a place where she belonged before. Maybe for a short while with our group of returners or light warriors. But again, we're always trying to make her do stuff, broker a piece and find a way and be the only hope that we have. And instead of being the hope for the entire world, she's just going to take care of these 25 kids who don't have parents anymore. Right. And, and there's something very powerful about that, especially in a world like this where who knows if anything can be done about Kafka that that maybe all we can do is take care of each other. And, and you know, Celeste was just a while ago ready to live out the rest of her life on an island with an old guy. <laughs> right. Out. Right. So I think they also kind of understand at that point. I should hope so. Like, I, I never get the impression that any of the characters here look down on Tara for making this decision. Agreed. Which which I appreciate. And it's even driven home a little bit when suddenly... Right. One of the, the monsters, one of the kaiju perhaps, uh, right. freed by the breaking of the world, attacks this town. I don't know why. I'm going to say Pumbaba. Yeah. Maybe it's Funbaba. Yeah. Because it's got that PH, but whatever. Pumbaba attacks the town. It's It's sort of just a... A narrative device, but y- you might think that you know Pumbaa has been rampaging across the continent in general, right? But Terra runs out to defend the town and quickly loses. She she can't. She really does not have what it takes to fight like this anymore. Yeah, you do zero damage in battle, <laughs> right? So Celeste and Sabin uh, hero up. They go out there. They they chase off Pumbaa, who drops the Fenrir Magicite for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And Tara is in bed. She says, I, you know, I've lost my fighting edge. As you can see, I, I'm no help to you. Besides, these children need me. Yeah. And, and so we, our heroes, move on. I have to say that shocked me when I was a kid. Again, it, you think a video game, you go, you find she's been kind of the main character of the game up to this point. Like, all right, cool, we got Tara back. Now we're really ready to go. I, I, I didn't think she was going to say no. And that you were going to have to right. leave without her. It's so good. Right. It's so strong. So, on the other side of the Serpent Trench is the town of Nike Or Nikie. Whatever. Nikia uh, is always how I've pronounced it. But that almost sounds too much like... Okay. Ikea? I don't know. Yeah. Sure. I'm sure somebody knows how to pronounce it. You will, as you're walking along the Serpent Trench, pass the mountainous valley in which the Fanatics Tower rests. But you can't get there. And in this town, in the cafe, you find a bunch of thieves who are, are pretty overt about what their plans are. Apparently, they escaped from Figaro, uh, from the, the prisons of Figaro, and they plan on, you know, heading back. A couple other things you can, or one other thing you can pick up here is that there are some people who... Uh, after the end of the world, woke up alone in Doma Castle, and whenever they slept there, demons came for them. Uh, you, you'll find that from a couple different people throughout the world. But the thieves uh, explained that they intend to go to Figaro Castle, that they escaped through some caves created by sandworms, and that they have a new boss named Jared uh, who wants to help them do this. 
the only way to get to South Figaro from Nikia is the boat. But when you try to get on the boat, uh, you are told it is owned by the Crimson Robbers. And you're not a Crimson Robber, so you're not allowed. No girls allowed. You also learn that Figaro Castle has been stuck under the desert. Uh, it hit a rock or something. Yeah, I love that detail. Like, you didn't need to put that in there, but we, we've talked before about all the little details in Final Fantasy VI that don't need to be there, but they just make it feel richer. All these little lines of dialogue about what's going on in Doma and prepping you for all these things. It's just It just makes the world feel full and lived in and real. Absolutely. That is one of the reasons I love this game. And then wandering back through the uh, market, you see a very familiar-looking guy, but his palette's been swapped, so we're not quite sure it's him. Celeste immediately recognizes him and says, Hey, you're Edgar. He says, No, I'm, I'm not Edgar. I don't even, I've never even heard that name. What are you talking about? He's like, Come on, you're Edgar. And he says, he has this line that I think is, that this exchange I feel is very silly, but I like it. He says, Enough of this nonsense. I have things to do. I've been Jared all my life, my lady. And Celeste says... Only Edgar would say, my lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, wait, what? Like, hang on. Hang on. Maybe uh, maybe only noble folks talk like that. Maybe only noble folks from the north talk like that. Yeah. But Edgar says, actually, the words my lady are used all over the world. Uh, <laughs> either way, we're fairly certain that just because he's wearing different clothes doesn't mean this is not... Edgar. Also, Jared is clearly an anagram of Edgar. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So we're we not sneak meant on board to be the ship. fooled by this. No, no, we are not. We sneak on board. Uh, we stow away to South Figaro. A couple of things you can learn in South Figaro is that Duncan, Duncan's wife, uh, if you'll recall, lives in South Figaro, and Duncan, Sabin's old martial arts master, she says, is alive and well, uh, and he's just meditating north of Narsh. Which kind of sounds like the thing you would say as a kid when one of your hero characters die. Oh, he wasn't killed. He was just knocked out. Yeah, right. Except in this case, it turns out to be true. And we'll jump ahead just a little bit because it's a very small story point. But once you've got the airship, you can fly up there and meet with uh, Master Duncan so that Sabin can learn his his last, right. what, is, what is it, the bum rush or the phantom rush or something like that? Yeah. Uh, so he learns his last blitz move, and it's a really powerful blitz move, and there's this whole training montage, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, classic kung fu trope stuff. Right. But for right now, Jared is in the inn, and you can follow him and the thieves to the cave of Figaro. Uh, and in the cave of Figaro, you are immediately met by Siegfried, which is cool, I guess. This guy we've had to fight occasionally who steals treasures that we want to steal. And he says, hang on, guys. It's pretty dangerous in there. I'll go in first and clear out the monsters. You wait here. But he never comes back. Yeah. And he doesn't clear <laughs> out the monsters. You go through and you're no. attacked by monsters. This <laughs> is such a weird, like, what? Yeah. Again, I, I think he was just trying to, like, stop the competition. Yeah, sure. But these, these fun little details. Would Final Fantasy VI be worse in any substantial way without Siegfried? No. But it's yeah. funny when it happens. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't matter. He's not a character who matters. Oh. But he's this. He's he's this figure who exists in this world, and he's. I mean, he's kind of a big deal. We know his name. We know his sprite. Right. We recognize him when you see him. Right. So eventually, you get to the spot where there used to be a recovery spring, and they lure a turtle over to hop on its back to get into this part of the cave you can never get to before, and then Siegfried hop, uh, follows after, 
and then we follow after Siegfried. And there are these various chests that have already been opened uh, and looted, presumably by Siegfried. And like he, you can encounter him at one point, but he runs away. Eventually, in following the thieves, you end up in the prisons of Figaro Castle. There are people collapsed in the prisons here. I don't know if they were meant to have been attacked by the thieves, or maybe they're running out of air. But Jared, who clearly is not King Edgar, is helping one of the Figaran guards. I don't know if he's maybe given him a potion or something. But... Uh, we follow Jared up the stairs and then down into the engine room. The guy who usually blocked the engine room is also collapsed and he does not stop us. And the engine room is filled with, I don't know what. I think they're called tentacles in the fight, but they're like snakes or vines or, and it's not, it's not Ultros, it's not. No, it's a weird you know, tentacled monster thing or several weird little tentacled monster thingies. Uh, I think it's open to interpretation. I'll put it that way. Sure. Maybe it was another monster released in the breaking of the world. And the thieves say, Boss, what are we going to do? Our treasures are in that room back there. And Edgar says, You go in there. I'll keep this thing busy. So even criminals in his country, who he presumably put through a, a just and fair criminal justice system, he's protecting them still. Right. Because they're people. They're not... Yeah. Right. Right. Once the thieves are out of the room, Edgar drops the drops the act and says, what are you guys waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Celeste, let's go. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> she's pretty She's pretty miffed at him, I will say, because the whole time yeah. she's like, I know who you are. <laughs> and he right. doesn't give it up until this moment randomly, and, she's, and she doesn't have too much time to give him gruff about it because they got to fight the monster. <laughs> right, right. So they defeat the monster, and it's fine. And uh, I can't remember if it's Celeste or Sabine. He says, what, what was with the farce? And he explains, well, I was wandering around. I heard what happened to Figaro. I wanted to help, but I didn't know how to get in. Fortunately, these, you know, I recognized these idiots, and they, were, you know, they knew a way in. You know, if they had gotten out, obviously they knew a way in. So I was able to convince them by pretending I wasn't the king. And then uh, you know, the thieves are coming out, so they hide from the thieves. They don't re-arrest the thieves or anything. The thieves get out with their treasure and and that's pretty much it uh edgar is a you know with the monster dead the engines work and they're able to raise the castle once again it's interesting too like you said that i think they even question him real quickly and he says oh they've never done any crimes of any real value like yeah i'm gonna let them take the treasure because that's what they get for breaking me back in fair play you know what 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 were they doing in jail then well presumably they'd you know, had maybe even it served their time, but we're stuck in there in the world of ruin or or whatever. Yeah, I, I know it, it's so, right. sort of a weird direction when he says, you know, they never really did anything all that bad anyway. But I suppose in desperate times, the li- line moves a little bit. How much you care about people who've stolen Fair things enough. versus people who may be out there doing stuff that's much worse. Kafka. So with Figaro Castle up and running again, we can travel between this desert and the desert on the other side of that little sea uh, where we can get to the town of Kolingen. This is the town where Rachel is still in suspended animation. You can go up there and talk to the the kooky old man and he'll talk about, well, 
Locke, he must be searching the world over for that treasure. Which treasure? Well, yeah. tough to say. You can get some clues that Cyan's been through. Some noble knight who uses thou was through the other day. Right. The man whose brother built the, wanted to build a coliseum has built a coliseum, and there's some mean guy up there looking for a weapon called the Striker. There's a, there's a Narsh guard here who says that the town is filled with monsters and I have nowhere to go now. But Tritoch is still up there, and maybe you could wake it up. Yeah. So that's that's a, a nice parallel to those other things we've already talked about. And finally, in the bar, we find a pale man in a long, dark jacket uh, at the bar. I get the impression he's drunk and perhaps has been drunk for the past year or so. Yeah. doesn't really say that. But that's the impression I get. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, exactly right. I, I get the sense that this is a person who's had a really rough time for, for a while now. Yeah. He, he's kind of like Tara in a way. He's like, you know, I, I'm just a gambler. I don't have it in me to do this anymore. I've lost my wings. I've, I've lost my friends. On the other hand, he's got some friends here. And Celeste gives them the line, uh, you want to live in the world as it is? If not, then let's do something about it. Yeah. Which is perhaps easier to say to a guy who's not taking care of 20-some orphans. Right. And yeah, he's found his own way, you know, presumably, again, in our retelling, into a bottle or, or substances of some kind. He's not living healthy. He's not dealing right. with this trauma by taking care of children right he's destroying himself because he has lost hope um but presumably he's supporting the uh, economy of collagen so there's that right and and that's the thing about our final fantasy heroes even when they lose hope they do it in surface ways but there's that part of them that is just waiting for celeste to walk into the bar slap you in the face <laughs> Look, right. It it's time to go. I know how you're feeling. Trust me. I know how you yeah, feel. She knows. Yes. And it's you might be asking why did he choose to hole up in the town of Colingen? Well, nearby, in fact, not a far walk from the town is uh, a tomb. In fact, it's a very big tomb, and I, I kind of wonder why it is the way it is. It's left unsaid. I n- noted its elaborateness as well, uh, and, and yeah, I did. I gave that some thought, and we know that sure. Setzer is rich by this world's mm-hmm. standards, mm-hmm. and presumably because she had the funds to build her own airship, we're getting into this, so was mm-hmm. Daryl. And so Daryl's tomb, where he says we must go, is exceptionally elaborate. And as, a, as I was watching the, the walkthrough and research for this, I was thinking about like Egyptian pyramids and the way rich people sure. would build their belongings into these big tombs. And that's really what this is down to some of the most important belongings or items or whatever you might call them in this world. And so I guess it would make sense that they would be locked away behind long tunnels of water and gateways and there's a bunch of turtle right. monsters like it's uh-huh. extraordinarily elaborate <laughs> right yeah I, I think there are various explanations you could come up with i kind of wondered if maybe this tomb existed before and they had explored it together but that seems more like a rachel and Locke thing yeah but but yeah th- so there's a lot of mystery surrounding this which is 
also good. Right. Yeah, so they, they go out to Daryl's tomb. Setzer leads them down here. Uh, I like this. Celeste says, uh, so this woman was your friend? And he says, yeah, nothing scared her. And I love that. Like, he he's scared, but she never was. Yeah. Again, there's a little line that I might change. I don't know if it's tonally because it's such a like an Americanism that I'm not sure people of this time or world would talk this way. On the other hand, when he calls Daryl a piece of work, yeah, I, I felt like I knew her, you know, I, it, I felt like it, it drove to it. And I don't like cliches like that to describe people, but you knew he meant it in such a loving way, but also what very little we hear about her paints pretty vivid picture so again well done to the writing team and and translators there is one thing i want to mention in all the uh puzzles and such is you have to inscribe uh on a tombstone you have to like find four tombstones to find the phrase backward to inscribe it on another tombstone to get a thing and the the phrase is the world is square which is fantastic which is wonderful because that's the the catchphrase of uh square soft at the time but also when you look at the world map it's literally square. It looks square. It's funny and ironic, too, because this is the first Final Fantasy game where we get more of a sense of the roundness of it with some of the camera angles that we get. But, yeah, when you look at the map, it's square. Um, and it's also a callback to the first game in the franchise when the only way to have the open world map, which is square, revealed mm-hmm. is to do, do a backwards magic right. Thing. It's press B select. Yeah. So when you make your way through the dungeon, there's this big long stairwell and, and there's some flashbacks. Uh, Sester talks about this bringing back a lot of memories. Then we get, you know, we get from Daryl's point of view. She says, This experimental airship is probably a bit unstable. Which makes me wonder is, you know, so a few years ago, were there more airships? Were they, were they building them all the time? Oh, Was it just the two of them? I I always had the opposite interpretation, that it was just the two of them, that they were on the cutting edge, that they were the first two to build and, and pilot airships, and that maybe that's part of the reason why some stuff went wrong here. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I had always gotten the sense that they were, at, at the very least, among the first. Well, if it's an experimental airship, that would suggest that there are airships that aren't experimental. There are airships that right. Right. Uh, are, are just regular run-of-the-mill airships. So maybe some of that technology has come out of the Empire, presumably spurred on by Sid. Does that mean that Setzer and Daryl are also engineers and are, are uh, you know, creating their own airships? You know, I, I assume that Daryl designed and engineered this airship on her own, or maybe with Setzer's input. Right, and actually there's another line. She makes a reference to trying to break all of the speed records. Who's setting right. speed records? So there mu- you're right, there right. must have been... How, see, we could do a whole story on the age of airships and what happened to them. What, why did they all go away? Right. Kind of like the dragons in Game of Thrones. Why aren't there any sure. anymore? And maybe it's proprietary technology. Maybe it's controlled by the Empire, and, and that's why, you know... The, that's why they got Setzer under their thumb, right? Right. They, they decided to ply him with whatever vices he prefers because he's got the only other airship outside their own. Right. And that's probably why they went and buried this one, or he went, and, as we're about to find out, he went and buried the Falcon deep right. underneath this tomb. Now I've got a conspiracy theory. 
we don't actually know what happened to Daryl. We get this flashback here now. He asked, you know, what are you trying to prove? Uh, and, and she has this line, if something should happen to me, the Falcon is yours. Now, is that because it's experimental or is it because the Empire is on her trail? Oh, man. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to win this from you in a race, Han Solo style. Yeah. And then she has that line about breaking every record, uh, breaking every record and be the woman who touched the stars. Mm. And then he says, I'll be waiting for you on our hill. I love that he gives up in the race. She scorches right. him. And she he, smokes him. And he just goes, <laughs> I, I'm headed home, sweetie, when you're done mm-hmm. being the most badass woman in the world. I'll, I'll be waiting for you at our spot. But we don't actually know what happened to her. We don't see her go no, down. We just see him staring out across the mountains waiting for her. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if the does. Empire had something to do with it. Yeah. If Setzer's standing on that hill with that beautiful sunset waiting for the love of his life, who he both adores and hates because she's better than him in every way. Yeah. And it maybe somebody sabotaged her airship. Oh, man, I hate the Empire more than I ever have right now <laughs> in this moment. Oh, oh, that's so So good. he explains that the wreck of the Falcon was found a year later. Oh. He restored the craft. He hid it in the tomb. And Edgar has a line. He says, this is the Falcon, yeah. which suggests that Edgar, as an engineer, has heard of the Falcon. Right. It's like, Which is obviously... By the way, a reference to the Millennium Falcon from I should think so Star Wars, yeah. and it reminds me of a meta outside of that story that Kevin Smith told on his podcast about the time he got to go and visit the set of one of the new Star Wars movies and got right. to go and stand inside the Millennium Falcon. You almost get the sense of Edgar being like a fanboy all of a sudden, the king yeah. of an entire realm, but mm-hmm. he is beside himself in the presence of this magnificence right I think he's impressed with Setzer because Setzer restored the craft Setzer's also got to be at least as brilliant an engineer as Sid and Edgar right I would think yeah and maybe the tomb (laughs) maybe maybe he built the tomb and all the traps I don't know because he knew the empire was coming for the ship right but he didn't want to fly it right maybe so at this point we get a very cool music cue The new airship music, whereas the overworld music in this world is very oppressive, like the 1999 music, no, the the future music in Chrono Trigger. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of ethereal and and clinking. The the overworld music for the world of Ruin feels that way to me also, but the the flying music feels like maybe we can do this. And it it emerges from the ocean like the great whale of Final Fantasy IV. And it's worth noting that you only need three characters in order to get to the end of the game. You need Celeste, you need Edgar to get you to Kolingen, and you need Setzer to get the airship. And then you can use those three characters to get to the to get to Kefka. I don't recommend it. I imagine that's something that people who want to challenge themselves do sometimes. Sure. But you miss out on a lot. Right. Uh, and there's even a, a big prompt here, as rightfully is the case, it's the theme of the game, again, uh, is found family. Now we literally have to go and 
find our family. As you mentioned, the piece of music. I'll talk more in the music episode about my history of airship themes. Not a big fan, honestly. Uematsu's a genius with everything, but I'm not a huge fan of most of the airship themes. I love this one. It's called Searching for Friends, and that's rightfully so, because that's what Setzer says at this point. Like, hey, look, it's time to go find our friends. But I also love, too, this... I don't know if you call it from a gameplay or storytelling. One of the best things about a Final Fantasy game is getting to meet all of the characters who are going to play a big role in the story, whether they become a member of your party or not. And there are so many to meet in this game. It's the biggest cast of characters in any of the Final Fantasy games still, Uh, unless you count things like tactics or whatever, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And... Not only do you, I talked about, first you get to hear about most of the characters before you meet them. You get rumors about them or you see them in flashbacks or you hear of them. Then you get to meet all the characters. Then they get to come together as a team. They really start to form a family. Then they're shattered and you get to meet them all again and go and see what everyone's up to. You, you get that sort of cathartic feeling of getting a new party member all over again with each one of the main cast of characters. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's one of the most beloved casts in the series, because you get all this extra stuff. Really, now it's just about finding out more about these people and the mechanism of what would you do in the end of the world really helps us get to know who these people are and maybe a little bit better about who we are. So you might be asking yourself, in a world of ruin with only four of our 12 family members together, how are we even going to begin to search for the rest? Well, at least in the moment, Celeste happens to find the, the trope of the episode. There's a bird, and she has a feeling. And she says, Setzer, follow that bird. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. And thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org, if you want to download it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we scour the world of ruin for the rest of the returners.